0: Back in 1975, director Steven Spielberg made people afraid to go into the water. This wasn't just some marketing statement either. After the movie Jaws was released, there were reports from all across the country of people who claimed to be afraid to go swimming, even in public pools, lakes, and streams. Not to mention the people who shied away from the coastal beaches where people had a real, albeit tiny, chance of encountering a shark. Back in 1971, writer Peter Benchley was a struggling freelance journalist when he began writing a novel about a seaside community terrorized by a killer shark. In 1964, Benchley read about the exploits of a shark fisherman named Frank Mundus. After shopping around some non-fiction pieces, Doubleday Publishing hired him to write a fictional work about a great white shark. Benchley and the publisher originally had a difficult time choosing a title. Many of Benchley's working titles, which he himself calls pretentious, were things like The Stillness of the Water and Leviathan Rising. Other ideas were presented to him that the book be titled The Jaws of Death and The Jaws of the Leviathan, both of which Benchley thought were too over-melodramatic. The book didn't actually get an official title until about 20 minutes before it was supposed to go into production, when everyone more or less threw up their hands and said, "Okay, let's just call it something short that fits on the dust jacket. And that's how it came to be called Jaws. The novel became a big bestseller, and soon Hollywood film producers signed on to adapt the book for the screen. The result is a film that many people consider to be a classic of American cinema. Spielberg streamlined Benchley's novel by jettisoning several subplots and focusing on the trio of protagonists, Police Chief Brody, Shark Expert Hooper, and the crusty shark fisherman Quint. The film ran over budget during production, and the mechanical shark never worked right, forcing Spielberg to shoot creatively and imply the presence of the shark without having to actually show it. Somehow, despite all the production problems, they managed to make what many people consider to be a film masterpiece. It was released in June 1975. Back then, the summer was considered to be a dead time at the box office, but Jaws changed all that. The film became the highest-grossing movie in history up to that point, making more than $100 million in its initial run, and much more during a couple of re-releases. It was the true father of the summer blockbuster film. Sharks are one of those creatures that people seem to have a primordial fear of. They've been around on Earth for millions of years, and they really haven't changed much in that time. Sure, shark attacks are extremely rare. If you ever watch Shark Week on the Discovery Channel then you've probably heard your odds are better of buying a winning lottery ticket and getting struck by lightning on the way to the beach than getting eaten by a shark. But that doesn't make them any less scary, though. Shark attacks can and do happen, just like they did around the Jersey Shore, back near the start of the 20th century. During a two-week period back in 1916, a series of deadly shark attacks occurred near the New Jersey coast, killing four people, and teaching people all across the country to fear the ocean. I'm Nate Hale, and just when you thought it was safe to go back in the water, this is The Conspirators. It was an unusually warm summer that year. The war to end all wars was being waged in Europe. In America, polio was ravaging communities all across the country. Doctors recommended that people get out and take in some fresh air as a remedy for all their ills. Considering the excessive heat and the lack of air conditioning, it didn't take much prodding to drive people in droves to the beach. The water glistened like a cascade of diamonds under the late afternoon sun. It all started with a young man and a dog playing in the surf. The young man was 25-year-old Charles Van Sant, and on July 1, 1916, he was vacationing with his family at the Angleside Hotel on Long Beach Island. His parents expected it to be their last trip together as a family. Charles was getting older now. He had just graduated, and he had a good job lined up with a brokerage firm back in Philadelphia and was engaged to be married in the fall. Soon he'd be starting a family of his own. He had his whole future ahead of him, all carefully arranged and waiting for him after this one last summer hurrah. He was a handsome young man, long and lean. Women noticed him. Even now, along this long stretch of sandy beach, he'd caught the eye of some of the ladies in their hourglass Gibson girl dresses, their hair done up in silk bows. Times were changing, that was for sure. Some of the women were even daring enough to roll their swimming dresses up just above the knee. It was positively scandalous for the era. At the moment, though, it wasn't the women who had Charles' attention, but the dog. It was a friendly creature, a red Chesapeake Bay retriever that came bounding up to him at the edge of the water, wanting to play. It licked his hand and followed him right in as he dove into the surf. Charles was a practiced swimmer, and his lean, muscular body knifed through the water with ease. Behind him, he could hear the dog splashing along, huffing, as it tried to keep up. Many eyes were upon him now from the shore, as he pushed farther out into the ocean. Farther than any of the other swimmers dared. He heard a small cheer erupt from the crowd, which only encouraged him to push even further on. For a while, the dog followed. But then, for no reason that Charles could understand, the dog abruptly whipped around and headed back towards shore. Charles called after it, but the dog kept going. Soon he could see it in the distance loping out of the water onto the beach and shaking the water from its fur. Peering around, he now realized that he was the last man in the water. He knew he should be getting back in. He was supposed to meet his parents for dinner soon. But for a moment, he liked having the ocean all to himself. It gave him a feeling like he was the master of the waves, the king of the sea. Out here, he was his own man, with no plans for life laid out in tidy rows for him. Out here, he felt he could be truly free. But the pull of the shore and the real world was too great. Ultimately, he let out a small sigh before turning around and beginning to swim back towards the beach. As Charles swam, some of the beachgoers who had been observing him noticed something odd. A dark fin rose up out of the water right next to the young man. Some people thought it was a porpoise at first. But porpoises weren't usually quite so curious and willing to come so close to swimmers. From shore, people beckoned towards Charles and began yelling at him to watch out. But Charles couldn't hear them as he turned his head in and out of the water with each rhythmic stroke. He was in only three and a half feet of water when the dark shape rose up out of the surf with its jaws open wide. A white membrane rolled over its black eyes as it bit down with more than six tons of pressure on Charles' left leg just below the knee. Charles' screams could be heard all along the beach. Time stood still. Onlookers stood by in shock and horror at the red froth spilling out all around the young man. Charles' own sister Louise was on the beach at the moment the shark attacked. She could see her brother thrashing and beating at the shark trying to get it to let go. Suddenly, several men were rushing into the water after him. Then the shark let go of Charles's leg and backed away. Some sharks behave in a way that's similar to large land predators like lions. Instead of expending all its energy battling with its prey, the shark tends to take a massive bite, then back off as it waits for its prey to tire itself out as it bleeds to death. Alexander Ott was the first to reach Charles. He was a championship swimmer who would later go on to swim with Johnny Weissmuller in public exhibitions. Ott grabbed Charles under his arms and hoisted him up out of the water to keep him from drowning. Ott was horrified when he realized that the shark had come back and latched itself back onto Charles' thigh. Ott said the shark had to be about 10 feet long, and he struggled to keep a hold of the young man as he and the shark began playing a terrifying game of -of tug-of-war. More men joined in and formed a human chain to drag Charles out of the shark's jaws and back to safety. But remarkably, at first the creature wouldn't let go, and it actually began coming up onto the beach with them. Then, just as quickly as it appeared, the shark let go and vanished once again into the water. Charles's father, Eugene Vansant, was a doctor. He rushed down the boardwalk steps to the bloody body of his son. Charles was lying on his back in the sand, His left leg had been nearly completely severed. He ordered several of the men to pick his son up and carry him into the hotel. There they carried him into the hotel manager's office. They unscrewed the manager's office door and laid it out across two desks to act as an operating table. But Dr. Van Sant had never dealt with a wound so severe in all his years, and everything he tried to do to staunch the bleeding failed. Charles Van Sant bled to death before his father's eyes. Even after word spread from witnesses as to what had happened, few people believed it was a shark that had killed Charles Van Sant. Up until that point in history, very little at all was known about sharks. And the common belief was that they were timid creatures who never attacked humans. Newspaper reports suggested either a sea turtle or a giant tuna had killed Charles Van Sant, Although a few eyewitnesses who had gotten up close to the true culprit insisted it had been a shark. Most scientists at the time balked at the suggestion that a shark would ever kill a human. It was widely believed back then that a shark didn't even have a strong enough bite to have cut clean through a man's leg. So it was obviously some other sea creature that must have done the deed. By the next morning, the hotel staff were out and about reassuring guests that the beaches were safe. They erected netting all around the beach that was purportedly strong enough to even block a German U-boat. Within days, rumors began to circulate that the details of the young man's death must have been greatly exaggerated, and that he likely just drowned. The New York Times buried their story about the incident on page 18. By July 6, the papers were once again declaring it a fine day to head to the beach. There were a few isolated reports of people who claimed to see sharks near the Jersey shore, but most people remained unconcerned. About 40 miles up the coast from where Charles Van Sant died were the Essex and Sussex Hotel, a classy establishment catering to the wealthy. The Essex and Sussex offered its well-heeled guests such creature comforts as a bathtub in every room, each equipped with both hot and cold seawater service. The bell captain for the Essex and Sussex was a 28-year-old former Swiss Army soldier named Charles Bruder. Blonde and athletic, Bruder was popular among both the hotel staff and guests. He sent all his tips home to his mother back in Switzerland. He ran his staff with that renowned Swiss efficiency. He ran a tight ship, so tight in fact that it occasionally allowed him the chance to slip away and enjoy a quick dip in the ocean. Throughout the summer at the hotel, Bruder had cultivated a reputation as quite a swimmer. He had proven himself able to swim out farther and stay out longer than anyone. He'd heard earlier that day a pair of competitive swimmers named Robert Downing and Leonard Hill had set a hotel record for swimming out the farthest away from shore, and Bruder was eager to reclaim his title. He'd of course heard the rumor about the shark attack a few days earlier. It was all the talk among his bellhop staff. But Bruder brushed it off. He liked to brag that he'd swam with large sharks off the coast of California, and he'd come away completely unscathed. Sharks were harmless creatures, he told everyone. There was nothing to be afraid of. Bruder and a few of his bellhops hustled out of the marble lobby to the bathhouse to change into their bathing suits. A couple of the other guys were a little hesitant at first to step into the water, but Bruder charged right past them at full speed. He began heading away from shore at a steady pace. There were safety ropes strung along the shallow edge of the water. But Bruder just dipped right below them and kept going. It wasn't long before he was more than a thousand feet from shore. People along the beach took notice of him. Bruder set his sights on the horizon, and he just kept going, his well-muscled arms and legs moving at a comfortable rhythm. There's a lot of speculation about what exactly attracts sharks to attack humans. One suggestion about the attack on Charles Van Zant made by some shark experts was that it wasn't the human that attracted the shark, but the dog that had waded into the water after him. In the case of Charles Bruder, though, he was all alone in the water. And whether the shark thought he was a seal paddling through the water or just easy prey, it soon zeroed in on him and struck with sudden ferocity. Bruder never saw it coming. By now he was so far out he appeared to be no bigger than an insect to people on shore. One woman who had been watching him cried out that there was something wrong with the man in the red canoe out there in the water. The lifeguards on duty, They called them surfmen, incidentally. Realized there was something wrong with one of the bathers so far from shore. They dragged a small rescue boat out into the surf and began to paddle their way towards him. It didn't take long for them to realize the red canoe the woman shouted about earlier was blood on the water. Bruder's arms were pinwheeling above his head as a massive dark shape kept darting around below the surface. Bruder cried out that a shark bit him just before his head went under the water. The surfman lowered an oar into the water, and Bruder grabbed on. They managed to drag him up and lift him up onto the gunwales. They grabbed him under his arms and pulled him into the lifeboat. He was covered in gaping wounds. Blood pumped out of what was left of both legs. They ripped off his shirt and tried to tie up his wounds with some makeshift tourniquets, but the damage was too great. There was a huge gouge ripped from his torso. His left leg had been bitten off just above the knee. His other leg didn't fare much better. Remarkably, Bruder remained conscious for a little while, and he managed to babble out to the surfman how the shark had bitten him over and over again, shaking him in its mouth like a rat. They listened wide-eyed as they rowed desperately for shore. Soon, Bruder fell silent as he closed his eyes and lost consciousness. He never opened them again. This time the story of Bruder's death spread like wildfire. This was a death just outside a ritzy hotel, after all, and the thought that one of the wealthy patrons may have been killed was too much to ignore. Panicked guests refused to swim in the ocean. The New York Times interviewed several scientists, but they all insisted that this couldn't have been a shark. Perhaps it was a giant sea turtle, or a swordfish, or even a big mackerel, but a shark? Never. Even with these experts quoted as saying a shark attack was impossible, on July 7th, the New York Times still ran the headline, Shark Kills Bather Off New Jersey Beach, Bites Off Both Legs of a Young Swimmer. That story finally grabbed some public attention. Many vacationers suddenly cut short their trips, packed up their belongings, and went home. For the first time, people were beginning to fear sharks. Despite so many officials still denying a shark was killing people along the Jersey Shore, The state knew it had to do something to protect its tourism business. The New Jersey governor came up with some money to fund shark patrols. Several boats were set out around the mid-Atlantic coast trailing pools of animal blood and chunks of lamb in hopes of catching the predator. On Saturday, July 8th, a group of children were bathing near the Robbins Reef Yacht Club in Bayonne, New Jersey, when a nine-foot-long shark swam in among them. When the children saw the dark shape approaching, they all began screaming, Shark! and swam for shore. A police lieutenant named Dennis Callahan was nearby when he heard the commotion. He came running up to the water's edge and got there just in time to see a big shark lift its head out of the water just a few feet away from where the children were swimming. Callahan took out his revolver and began firing. He emptied the gun and he was certain he hit the beast more than once, but all it did was swim away. It's impossible to say for certain if what happened next was caused by the same shark that killed Van Zantenbruder or not. Although the sheer coincidence of the events that occurred certainly seems to point in that direction. There are only two species of shark that can survive in both saltwater and freshwater, the bull shark and the great white. Today many shark experts say that the shark that killed all those people back in 1916 was likely a bull shark. Although many of the descriptions of the creature, with its gray exterior and pale belly, suggests it may have actually been a young great white. In either case, the shark appears to have done something quite unusual this time. It moved inland. Thirty miles north of Spring Lake and inland of Raritan Bay, along the banks of a winding creek, is the town of Matawan. There along the creek's edge, you could see the beehive kilns that made the tiles that line New York City's subway system. The town seemed to hover in a space between that sort of Norman Rockwell small town charm and the rapid crush of industrialization. Whereas the town had once been a fishing village that produced the next generation of sea captains and fishermen, now the primary industry was factory work. Not everyone was happy about the change. Thomas Cottrell was an old salt a former sea captain and Madawan resident who was the first to swear that he spotted a shark swimming up the creek. The townspeople dismissed him as a crazy old coot. At around 2 p.m. on July 12th, a group of young boys stripped off their clothes to do some skinny dipping in a part of the creek near the Wyckoff Dock. The laughing boys tossed their clothes onto the edge of the pier and jumped in the water. The creek was only 30 feet wide here and not terribly deep. It was a good day for swimming, with scarcely a cloud in the sky and a thin breeze slowly stirring the grasses near shore. One of the boys named Rennie Carton didn't know what it was that brushed up against him in the water, only that it hurt. The skin of a shark is extremely abrasive. Carpenters once used their thick hide-like sandpaper to smooth out the hardest woods. Rennie Carton let out a yelp as something scraped across his chest like dozens of tiny knives. He scrambled out of the creek and was stunned to see that he was bleeding. He tried to urge the other boys out of the water. Something had brushed up against him, he told them. Something big. But his warnings fell on deaf ears. Rennie put his clothes back on and left to get his mom to bandage up his scraped-up chest. Meanwhile, his friends laughed and hollered and played on. Eleven-year-old Lester Stilwell was one of the youngest of the boys who was playing in the creek that day. They all knew Lester suffered from epilepsy and was prone to violent fits. So when Lester went under the water and didn't come back out, some of the townspeople speculated that the boy had just drowned while having a seizure. But that's not what the boys who came running and screaming for help told people what they saw. They tried telling everyone that the biggest fish they'd ever seen had grabbed Lester in its mouth and dragged him under. Several townspeople rushed back to the water's edge and tried to find the missing boy. 24-year-old Watson Stanley Fisher saw Lester Stillwell's body floating in the water. He dove into the creek and swam over to retrieve the boy's body. That's when the shark seized hold of his leg in front of everyone. Fisher managed to get away and drag himself out of the water, only to bleed to death at Monmouth Memorial Hospital a few hours later. They didn't recover Lester Stillwell's body until two days later, when it was recovered 150 feet upstream from the Wyckoff Dock. About 30 minutes after the fatal attacks on Lester Stillwell and Watson Stanley Fisher, the shark struck again. This time attacking a 14-year-old boy named Joseph Dunn. The boy was one of a small group who were swimming at the creek further away from all the other commotion. By now, word had spread throughout town that a shark was loose in Madawan Creek. A man spotted the boys in the water and ran down to the water's edge and told them they needed to get out right now. The boys scrambled for safety. Joseph Dunn was making his way to the pier ladder when the shark seized hold of his leg. By now, several men were out in boats on the water looking for the shark. One of them was a Matawan lawyer, Jacob Lefferts, who saw the shark biting Joseph Dunn and trying to drag the boy off. Lefferts jumped out of the boat he was riding in and swam after the boy. He grabbed hold of the boy and tried to wrestle him out of the shark's mouth. At first, the shark wouldn't let go. Then suddenly, it released Joseph's leg and Lefferts was able to pull the boy to safety. Joseph Dunn was rushed to St. Peter's University Hospital in New Brunswick, where he would eventually recover from his wounds. Shark fever gripped the public after that. Reports began springing up all around the Jersey Shore of shark sightings, many of them in and around Madawan Creek. Fishermen and hunters lined the creek's edge and went out on boats armed with spears and rifles. On July 14th, a taxidermist and Barnum & Bailey lion tamer named Michael Schlesinger was fishing in Raritan Bay when he caught a young great white shark in his nets. The shark was so large it nearly sunk the boat. Schlesinger didn't have any weapons on his boat, so he beat the shark to death with one of his boat's oars. Later on he opened up the shark's belly and discovered several pounds of human flesh and bone. Scientists identified the shark as a young great white. Schlesinger proudly declared that he had killed the man-eating shark that had eaten four people. Whereas we don't know for certain if that was the shark in question, it is true that no more shark attacks occurred after Schlesinger killed the great white. Some people who have studied the case remain skeptical. Some scientists say the shark could have scavenged human remains left over from a sunken German U-boat. Many modern-day shark experts still hold fast to the belief that the most likely culprit for the attacks was a bull shark, since it had a greater ability to survive in freshwater than a great white. In 2011, the Smithsonian Channel made a documentary in which it posited that a great white still remained a possibility, since at the time of the attacks, the full moon was in phase, which would have raised the salinity in the water. In the movie Jaws, Richard Dreyfuss' character, Hooper, actually mentions the 1916 shark attacks in one scene. Although many people have cited the 1916 shark attacks as the inspiration for Jaws, author Peter Benchley has always denied it. The Conspirators is written and produced by me, Nate Hale, an entirely fictional identity. I need to give some thanks and shout-outs to my latest Patreon supporters, Big thanks go to Eric and David for both generously supporting the show. If you'd like to help support the show too, I'll put a link to my Patreon page in the show notes. Patreon supporters, depending on their level, are able to get all sorts of rewards, including stickers, thank you cards, magnets, t-shirts, and of course access to our Patreon-exclusive bonus mini-episodes. In fact, by the time you hear this, I'll have released my latest mini If you're interested in learning more about the 1916 Shark Attacks, they want to recommend a book you might enjoy. Close to Shore, The Terrifying Shark Attacks of 1916 by Michael Capuzzo provided a lot of the research I did for this episode. And it's an excellent read. Highly recommended. As always, I encourage you to rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. If you're not using iTunes, don't worry. We're also available on Stitcher, the Google Play Store, and your favorite podcast app. We also have a website, theconspiratorspodcast.com. Thanks again, and I hope you'll join me again next time.